Radio Drome. Another Thursday is upon us, another Radio Drome is upon us, and another Bradless episode. Brad's got the flu. I've got the flu. And keep in mind, we live in other states, so completely unconnected. So I'm going with my backup plan and having Dane Forgoni from the Mental Cast as my guest host this week. You see, I gave you the flu because you can't get my last name right purposely. Eh, it happens. What do you got going on this week, Forgoni? Oh, well, you know, this, that, and the other thing. I downloaded a very nice torrent that gave me the 72 so-called video nasties in one nice little complete package. Have you seen the documentary, that British-only documentary on the video nasties? That's how they is say that, it over there, nasties. Is that ban the sadist videos? No, th- that's a different one. That one actually, I think that one was on British television. No, it's a new one called uh, just, I think it's The Video Nasties. And I it's seen, it's like a... Actually, I've seen both of them, yes. Okay, because that is a really good documentary. I'm not trying to sound all, you know, oh, my, my film knowledge is better than yours, but the reason I didn't really care to download all The Video Nasties are, I'd already seen a good chunk of them. Most of them were not films I really needed to see. I just didn't feel that that it was that necessary to download all the video nasties. Josh's life, he didn't need Island of Death to uh, complete his life. Well, okay, I've told this story before, but I saw a lot of these movies when... Remember I told the story about how my mom used to work at the grocery store that had a video store in it? Yes, you did. Yeah, and so we cleaned out the entire horror section. So I I rented most of those. It's ironic, you know, renting something that would be a video nasty in England, and you can get it from a grocery store here in America. I just always find that really ironic. Rain on your wedding day. Oh, God, please don't start singing Alanis. Before anybody says anything, I know the joke is that none of those things are actually ironic. Yes, they're more coincidence. Mike from the Mental Cast has drilled that into my head several times. Well, Alanis really wasn't that good. I mean, and the the problem I have with her, you know how she's got the, what was the first song? You you Oughta Know, You Gotta Know something? You Oughta Know. Okay. Do you know who the the guy she's speaking about in that is? Dave Coulier. Yeah, Dave Coulier. I'm sorry, but it just doesn't help your image when I picture fingernails down your back from Dave Coulier. It just, yeah, it doesn't help the mental image of that at all. Dave, Dave Coulier. Why would you want to admit that? Well, you see, he's one of those actors that you kind of go, how did this guy have a career? <laughs> Pretty much. Well, because, I mean, you've got all these actors like like Pauly Shore. How did Pauly Shore make 20-plus movies? How? How did some Hollywood studio think Pauly Shore would be a good choice for this role. And then how did the audiences go, you know what, I really want to go see that new Pauly Shore movie. It'll probably be really good. I can't name one Pauly Shore movie that I thought was funny. Neither can I. I mean, I think the best thing he ever did was the time he was a stupid teenager on 21 Jump Street. He's a stupid anything in every movie. Exactly. You know, it just, I don't know, the thing, I've never understood that right now, and I've bitched about this numerous times before, to me, the new Pauly Shore is Seth Rogen. The guy has... I don't think the guy has any acting talent. He plays the same character in every single movie. He's not a good writer, and yet somehow he is one of the most in-demand actors in Hollywood. 
I don't understand this. You could say the same thing about Will Ferrell. He plays the same character in every single movie. Or that... Like Sarah plays the same character in every single movie. And it gets on my freaking nerves. Well, it's the same thing. People used to uh, make fun of, like, Robert De Niro. Oh, you know, by the 90s. Robert De Niro doesn't play characters anymore. He plays Robert De Niro in every movie. And, and they called that, like, a bad thing, but the fact that Michael Sarah plays the same character in every movie, they're like, oh, he found his niche. It's like, no, why is it an insult when one, per- when one actor does it to them, but when another actor does it, it's a compliment? I don't understand that. They need Michael Sarah to feel good about himself. He doesn't really have much going for him in other uh, instances. Well, there's also the fact that let's be honest, he's not a very good actor even in that same character he plays in every single movie. Right. Youth in Revolt was probably the worst movie I ever saw. Well, there's also a new one that I've been seeing pop up a lot, probably because of his association with Seth Rogen, and that is Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill plays the exact same character in every movie, just like Rogen, and I actually think Seth Rogen has more acting talent than Jonah Hill does. And that's saying something. Why is Hollywood obsessed with these people that can't act? Whereas then you've got the great you've got great actors that always turn in a high quality performance, and they can't even get movie roles. They're stuck with uh, little background characters and one line shots. But when you see them like really spreading their wings on a TV series, you go. This guy is awesome. I might as well pose this question to you. Who who do you think is who's a good example of that? Dean Winters. You probably don't even know his name. Am I correct? Is he related to Alex Winters? No. Dean Winters, you might most people might know him as the psychotic Irish sleazebag Ryan O'Reilly on Oz. I don't know if you ever watched Oz or not. I watched Oz, but a very long time ago. Well, okay, right now he he he's in a lot of commercials. He's the uh, destruction in in all those State Farm commercials. You know, where, where he's jumping off the trees and oh. and being the teenage girl. Oh my that's, God, that guy is awesome. Yeah, that's that's Dean Winters. Dean Winters is awesome. You ever see like the Millennium episode, The Curse of Frank Black? He is phenomenal in that. He, he's had a couple appearances on 30 Rock, and he is hilarious. He was in the first season of Law & Order Special Victims Unit, and he was great. He was amazing in Oz. I've seen him in some short films, a couple of independent features. He's amazing in everything he's in, yet he's always struggling to get work because nobody, you know, he's not a name. Whereas someone like Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill are turning down offers because they don't have enough time for all the people that want them in their movies. I don't understand that philosophy of Hollywood. Somebody needs to hire Dean Winters more. He's an amazing, amazing actor. I wanted to to bring, to talk this up with Brad possibly in a couple of weeks, but I want to do like the Exploitation Oscars films from the 70s and 80s that would never, ever, ever have gotten nominated for any kind of Academy Award, but technically should have. Like, have you ever seen Vice Squad from 82? I might have, but I, I've it's gone out of my head, though. To me, it is a crime that Wings Hauser was not given a Best Actor nomination for his role as Ramrod in that. Yet, 
a, a low-budget, million-dollar, sleaze-fest-like Vice Squad was never going to even be on the radar of the Oscars. And uh, so in a couple of weeks, I want to do that where we go through the movies that would never have been looked at as Oscar contenders, but should have been if the Oscars were actually about quality performances and not about, well, what movie's really big right now. Look at uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. And the Oscar for Best Actor goes to Joe Don Baker for Mitchell. <sighs> no, I'm thinking more like Michael Rooker in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. We'll see that. That movie that, would that never. Really underrated movie. That's one of those movies that you literally feel dirty. You know, you feel like you got to go take a shower after you watch that. And I mean that as a compliment to the film. I've taken 20 showers, but I still don't feel clean. Yeah, that movie, and I mean, Tom Tolles is just phenomenal in that, too, as Otis. Both How about, um, what's his face, and Stepfather, what's his... Uh... Terry O'Quinn? Yeah. Fr- from the first two? Mm-hmm. He, it's the same character, but different actors in the three and... I think they made a Stepfather 4, didn't they? I, I, I can't know. remember. I, I, I know I... I stopped watching after 2. So did I, but I just picked up 3 on VHS not too long ago. And I, and Brad told me it's not really worth watching. So I'm a little no. on the... Eh, I'll just probably leave that sitting on the shelf. Because he said they actually try and explain why it's a different actor, that it's the same character and he goes and has plastic surgery. And that's why it's the same character played by a different actor. And you just kind of roll your eyes, going, "Oh my God, are you serious?" What, a, what an original, what an original idea! And also really dumb when you're trying to deal with something that's arguably set in the real world. But then, you know, you, you've got films that just hit you over the head with their intensity, like Rolling Thunder. Never nom- that would never be nominated for an Oscar. Yet it's probably far more intense and well made than any of the films that were actually nominated for Best Picture that year. I honestly gave up on anything 100% right any any year they do the Oscars. It's it's absolutely ridiculous, some of the things they nominate. They have a giant dartboard. Oh, let's nominate this! Well, it uh, a perfect example is 1996. The People vs. Larry Flint. Nominated for Best Picture. Milos Forman nominated for Best Director. Woody Harrelson nominated for Best Actor for playing Larry Flint, right? Right. Larry Flint was asked, can I come to the Oscars? They said, no, we don't want you here. So what Woody Harrelson had to do is he brought Larry Flint as his plus one when he went to the Oscars. But they outright, we love the movie about this guy, but we don't actually want that guy here. So Woody Harrelson had to bring Flint as his plus one to get in to get into seeing you know the movie win awards that it was based on the life of did, this guy. Did did People vs Larry Flint win anything? I don't remember. Woody Harrelson maybe won. No, Woody, I, I Woody don't Harrelson know. Did not. I know he didn't win the Oscar. Okay, I, I'm I'm not a hundred percent. I know he was nominated, but I don't think. I don't think it won any of the awards it was up for. But you also got to realize there's no way a film like that would ever win those awards. Same thing with, uh, I remember when American History X was nominated for a couple of awards. There's no way they're going to give a movie about a curb stomp and Nazi. There's no way that movie's going to ever win an award. 
it was nominated just kind of, well, all right, we'll, we'll throw them a bone and nominate them, but we're never going to choose them to win. Look at um, Brokeback Mountain losing to Crash. Now, keep in mind, I have not seen Crash or Broke, Brokeback Mountain, okay? But what everybody tells me is Crash was easily the most inferior film that was nominated for Best Picture that year, which was why it was such a surprise when that ended up winning. If you remember, like, going into it, everybody was like, oh, it's not a question of if Brokeback Mountain's going to win. It's, good. it's a question of how many awards it's going to win. Right. Then it came time to Best Picture, and Jack Nicholson's like, oh, and the winner is Crash? And everyone was just like, huh? Well, because, yeah, everybody has told me Crash is a, not even a good film, that it's not well-written, it's not well-directed, and the performances are brutally over the top. I really, I really think the Oscar committee chickened out on giving Brokeback Mountain the uh, Oscar because of... Well, because of all the undertones, the sexual undertones well, in said movie. Think of think about it like this, Dane. Brokeback Mountain should not feel too bad. There's nothing wrong coming in number two. Uh, Come on, you know I was setting up that joke the whole time. <laughs> you were you were just building up to that one joke. Pretty much. On the same token, you also have the. You know, I don't want to turn this into a whole Oscar show, but you've also got. The way science fiction and horror are just marginalized. Seriously, what was the last horror film that won major awards that was actually called a horror film that you can think of? Because there's been a couple that are clearly horror films, but they don't call them. They call them, you know, like Silence of the Lambs was called a suspense thriller. It's about a guy who's kidnapping people, fat women, to make a suit out of their skins, and another guy who is a cannibal. I'm sorry, that's a horror movie. That's not a suspense thriller. Well, you took my answer. I was going to say, you would probably think maybe Silence of the Lambs, but other but, than that... But that, that's why I threw the qualifier out. A horror film that was actually called a horror film. The last one that I can think of would be The Exorcist in 1973. Because whenever a horror film gets nominated nowadays... They don't call it that. Like I said, they changed... Because you got to remember, Silence of the Lambs, it was sold as a horror film. It was in all the horror magazines. Everyone who saw it knew it was a horror film. But then when it came Oscar time, well, we can't nominate a horror film for all these awards. How about we make it a suspense thriller? Then it can win the awards, and we won't feel bad about ourselves. I honestly think The Exorcist is the last one that was actually called a horror movie. Was Rosemary's Baby, was that nominated for anything? Yes, but that was 60s. That was 68. Okay. So, so Exorcist is after Rosemary's Baby. Then you, okay. also, you also have... When, when you've got a film that actually uses special effects, that loses its special effects Oscar to a guy in a fat suit, that's a little <laughs> insulting, too. I remember when Star Trek First Contact lost to The Nutty Professor for best special effects. And I'm going, huh? How did Eddie Murphy in a fat suit beat Star Trek First Contact? That The makeup and special effects categories, I always have issues with those because they always they pick the stupidest things. Well, and then what I think is really funny is now makeup and special effects, CGI is considered okay. It's ironic 
when Tron came out in 82, it was disqualified for the special effects Oscar because they said using the computer to make the effect was cheating. Wow, have times changed, huh? Now most of the special effects winners are chock full of CGI. Exactly. So yeah, to, I don't not, to turn this into a full Oscar show, but that's some of my problems with, with that crap. And just all the awards in general. Because even the terminology in Hollywood, such as Roger Corman has bitched about this so often that he's called the king of the bees. And he's, you know, whenever people introduce him at a convention and stuff, they're like, B-movie king Roger Corman, as he's pointed out numerous times, he's never made a B-picture. All of the movies he made back when he did AIP flicks and all that were the A-movie on the bill. So he doesn't understand why Hollywood equates low-budget, oh, that's a B-movie. Because to Hollywood, low-budget means B-movie. He did kind of get a bit of uh, retribution because he wa- he did win an honorary Oscar because, you know, whether you like his pictures or not, he did I'm a huge Corman fan. a lot of careers. Jonathan Demme, Francis Ford Coppola, James Cameron, yeah, Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, Joe Dante. I mean, I, I can list a hundred different names that got their start, their, start, their start with Corman. But it's just he's always had problems with this B-movie thing. Because Hollywood really does do that. And when I say Hollywood listeners, what I'm talking about is the film industry in general, not Hollywood specific to the town, okay? I'm talking Hollywood as a film industry. They have the problem of if something is low budget, then it's it's automatically low quality. And I really don't like that. Nine times out of ten, seriously, if you pick the ten best movies of the last ten years, I'm going to almost guarantee you at least seven of those are probably under $5 million for their budget. There just seems to be more quality when you don't have all the money in the world to spend. You seem to take a little bit more time and you seem to care for the product a little more. And by extension, you have less hands in there that that want to, well, why don't we do this to, you know, because if you've got a big budget, you've obviously got to make more money. So then you have more marketing people that are going, well, cast this person in this lead role. That'll automatically bring in a 5% stronger base. And you go, but he's wrong for the role. Right, but we'll make more money off of that. You know, that whole Hollywood style of accounting. It makes sense. You can have a movie that's budgeted at $200 million. You can have all the special effects and CGI in the world. That doesn't mean the movie's going to be any good. Look at Van Helsing. Pretty much. I was about to say... Look at look at the latest uh, werewolf. Well, okay. First of all, that I didn't think was that bad. There were clearly problems with it, but I honestly think that could have been far worse than it was. And I, I, I'm assuming you're referring to the Wolfman with uh, Hopkins and Del Toro. Yes, the okay. Oscar-winning, by the way. Okay, that was not a great film, but I've seen a lot worse. And honestly, the only reason I went to see that at all was when I bought the She-Wolf of London DVD set, it came with a free ticket. So I literally didn't even pay to go see Wolfman. Gee, lucky you. But then you also, you get into the whole looking down on, because going back to the whole, like, why Dean Winters can't seem to get 
his own TV show or anything, is you've also got this this stigma of working, you know, in the low budget movies. You worked in independent films. Well, I don't think you're going to be right for the studio system. Look at look at what happened with the guy that directed Judge Dredd, the the Stallone train wreck. He came from independent films. All he'd made up to that point was low-budget indies. Then he got his first big-budget break, and it turned out to be a disaster. And he said, basically, Stallone took over that production. Stallone was the one calling the shots. Stallone was rewriting the script. Stallone was making all the decisions, and all the director did was figure out where to point the camera. And he said, that would have never happened if this were a million-dollar Miramax film at that point. But that's the way the studio system works. They don't care what the end product looks like as long as it gets asses in seats. Look at how many big-budget movies come out that are just unwatchable. And you actually ask yourself, how did this ever get released? Yet there's all these great little films that have been shelved forever. Like, I just sent Brad to Joe D'Amato movies that never got released. Full, completed, low-budget films that were never released. And it kind of makes you scratch your head going, were were these really that bad that even Joe D'Amato fans wouldn't have paid for these movies? That there could not have been a financial interest in not releasing these films. Like, I look at something like, for example, Beverly Hills Chihuahua. Oh, the fact that that made that much... Not only how did it make $90 million in the box office, it's like people have to step back and be like, wow, we this movie's about talking chihuahuas, and it almost made $100 million in the box office. How is that even possible? Also, look at, uh, remember that uh, Jamie Foxx one, Stealth, about the rogue yeah. stealth jet? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how much of this is a joke, and I don't know how much of it is is truth but i've heard a joke from a friend who worked at the studio that made that and he said do you know what the pitch for that movie was what was the pitch the pitch was all right it's jaws but instead of a shark jaws is a spy plane and he said literally that was the pitch and they said you get a cast we'll give you the budget that sounds hilarious because jaws made money so obviously something that's imitating Jaws but is different enough that it's not going to be seen as an imitation, that will make money too. So like I said, I don't know how accurate that statement is about the pitch meeting for Stealth, but if you've ever seen the movie, it's really not that far off. I wouldn't be shocked if that was actually the truth. Well, Sometimes pitches are, are really weird in how the the pitcher has to think on his feet. Remember V... Not the terrible ABC series from now, but the original miniseries from 84. Do you know what the pitch for that was? It's, it's like Jaws in space. No. The, <laughs> the, the, the pitch was he, um, the producer was in front of the NBC executives, and he, he could tell he was losing them. He's like, you know, it, it's about the rise of Nazism in modern-day America, blah, blah, blah. And he could tell that they totally had no interest in this. And it was not originally supposed to be science fiction. It was supposed to be just a modern-day, um, you know, it, it could happen here kind of tale. And then he noticed he was losing them, and he just improvised and said, but the Nazis are from outer space. 
And all of a sudden, all their ears perked up, and they were like, okay, now you're talking something we can deal with. And it's just, it's literally that simple. One little quick thing can change whether you get your money or not. Okay, here's my pitch. Picture it, the the 1980s. Okay, so Roddy Piper wears these sunglasses, and when he does, he sees aliens. And he has to convince Keith David that these aliens exist. What do you think? Well, I'm not sure when he pitched that, that Roddy Piper was involved. But you also got to remember John Carpenter at that time. If You know, you're talking they live, and then yeah, Prince of Darkness was before that, and then In, In the Mouth of Madness was after that. you got to remember those were also low-budget, or at least relatively low-budget. I think those were between 6 and $10 million for most of those. Yeah. I, I know They Live, I think, was independently financed, because obviously if you've seen They Live, you know that the entire movie is basically bitching about all the people who would have paid to make said movie. So I can kind of see why They Live would have trouble finding investors. You, you know, I mean, you can kind of see how, how how the corporate the corporations really wouldn't want to be part of a movie like They Live, would they? No. If you really look at the underlying message, they'd be like, eh, you know, I think we're going to pass on this one. Uh, let's do Jaws 7 instead. Rocky Five. Thousand from Spaceballs. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what's really funny? In an old Thundar the Barbarian episode, remember it takes place. It was made in 1980. Takes place in 1994 when the Earth is split in two by a rogue planet, and then it takes place 2,000 years after that. So, obviously, they're going through like the ruins of Manhattan and stuff like that in what they thought 1994 would be like. They go buy a movie poster for Jaws 20. That's, that's the one with Ookla the Mob, right? Yes. And there's also another one that tells you a very, very specific, almost to the month, time period that this one episode was animated. At that same movie theater, it's in the episode The Treasure of the Mocks, which you can get you know, you know, can get the whole series on DVD. People can check this out. They go by, and the movie theater is showing Revenge of the Jedi. Not As opposed to Return of the Jedi? Right, but the original title was Revenge of the Jedi, and they only had that title for a couple of months. So for them to have animated that background with Revenge of the Jedi, that had to have been done in that very specific little time period when it was still called Revenge before it was changed to Return. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing to look at. I don't know. I, I always thought that was pretty cool. That Thundar, Thundar the Barbarian, you tricky, tricky bastards. You. Do you know who voiced Thundar? Remember in Boogie Nights, the captain, the guy whose uh, hookers overdosed, and then he got caught on child porn charges and was being that beaten. Guy? Yep. He, oh. he, he did a whole bunch of cartoon voices. He was on Scooby-Doo, and he worked for Hanna-Barbera all the time. Well, I'll be darned. He he did a ton of cartoon voices. Yeah, he he, he was Thundar. I want to talk about this real quick. I bought some... Oh, yeah, tell me what you were telling me before we went on the air. All right, I bought some Playboys from the 70s, and inside one of them was an Adam and Eve catalog that some guy had obviously been hiding from his wife from 1984. And... Okay, you know, I'm going through it, and obviously the prices are a little bit shocking at how much cheaper everything was in 1984. Come- Blow up dolls for five bucks. Holy crap. But he, here, here's the thing I wanted to talk to you about. Hardcore audio. Two X-rated audio cassettes. Now, 
was there really that big of a market for these? Now, I, I'm going to read you the... These are blind people, maybe. I'm going to read you to this, the description here. These are the best, explicit, arousing recordings of sex-crazed people really getting it on in every way you could imagine. Just pop one of these tapes into your stereo and watch your lover begin to squirm and wiggle with delight and anticipation. Oh, please. It gets better. There's, there's two different ones they're offering. Pleasure Lady. This sweet little nympho does it all with just about everybody who comes along. You'll hear every lip-smacking, finger-licking moan and groan as the Pleasure Lady gets her her treat wild and wet. Okay, now this this next one, Hungry, hungry Couple. I'm going to correct They have a typo in this, which is actually changes the dichotomy of some of this. I'm going to read it correctly, though. Hungry couple. Overhear the noises made by a horny couple who are into every sex act imaginable. Every sigh, every word, every groan uncensored. The startling sounds of their juicy lovemaking make us wonder where the microphone was during this red-hot recording. And they actually have, instead of every sigh, it's every sign. I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be sigh. But yeah, it's... These two, it, these two horny people were doing American Sign Language. It was yeah, kind of wild. It's clearly S-I-G-N, although I'm pretty sure that N is supposed to be an H. My thing with this is... See, I'd like to hear one of these. I want to find one of these and hear what these things were like. I'd love to hear find an old 1984 hardcore audio cassette. That's the new thing for fans out there. If you guys find any of these things, send them to us. The beginning, the beginning stages. Oh, not now, darling. I have a headache. Oh, come on, baby. Well, I'm just wondering how hearing people. I mean, I understand seeing people having sex. How that's a turn on, but hearing people have sex, that's a turn on. And then, does it really matter with every sex act imaginable? Um, do most of them really sound different? Um. I'm pretty sure most. I, I would have to say no. Yeah, I'm pretty sure most positions sound pretty much the same on an auditory level. Maybe that's just me, but I just well, pretty soon they'll, they'll have the, the smells of sex. Ooh, wow! But Maybe I just you know as I'm looking through this, besides the prices, I just ran across that and I was like, "Are you kidding?" I'm a little curious. How how much do those things go for? Like, what kind of price back then? Each tape was nine ninety five, or you could get the set for seventeen ninety five. Oh wow! What a bargain! What a bargain! And it it doesn't say how long they are, so I'm also interested. I mean, the running time might be ten minutes per per cassette. I don't. I have no idea what the running time on these things are. Unless you had some real marathon men in those recording sessions. Sessions? Is that what you're going with? Was that? Nothing. But yeah, it's just it's funny looking through like an old old catalog like this. One of the places where I bought all this stuff, I bought a, a newspaper from 1974. Just you know, they had it and it was a quarter. So yeah, I'll take a newspaper from before I was born. Just it's kind of fun to read. So I'm looking well, through let's this. See what's mixing up to today? Hmm. Gas gas prices outrageous. Gas prices. I don't know a, a dollar. In '74, that would have been outrageous. No, gas prices were like 40 cents a gallon. And people were, oh my God, will the country will collapse. I can't remember the exact number. So. People would ride in the streets in celebration if gas prices were 40 cents today. Yeah. 
No, no. A, a fan may correct me going, gas prices were not 40 cents back then. But no, like I cannot remember the exact number, but it was some ridiculously low amount. And there was also an ad for you know, uh, one of the grocery store chains. Milk was 35 cents a gallon. You're just, I'm looking at one of the real funny things is half of the food products don't exist anymore. I mean, the brands. It's like, oh, I remember that. Man, they was haven't made that since like... Brute? Uh, this this is way too early for fruit brute. Fruit fruit brute, I believe, was the eighties. At least that's when I, th- I think I bought fruit brute. I think fruit brute was eighties. So when when those monster cereals came out, it was what? Well, let's see, Count Chocula, Blueberry, Frankenberry, Yummy Mummy, Yummy Mummy, Fruit Brute, and Frankenberry. Maybe it was Yummy Mummy. I either had fruit brute or Yummy Mummy that I I used to eat. I don't remember which one. It does kind of. Make me sad that I can only get Booberry and Frankenberry in October now. It's kind of ridiculous that Count Chocula, which I love, is the only one that's available year-round. Picked up a VHS yesterday for 50 cents. What was the title? Ninja Mission. Ninja Mission. Ninja. The CIA can't control them. The KGB can't destroy them. Wow, that, that's a great tagline. That's what it says, and it's directed by nobody I've heard of, written by a guy I've never heard of, produced by a guy I've never heard of, and starring a bunch of people I've never heard of. Well, it's starring Christopher Kohlberg, Hannah Pola, and Bo F. Mutanti. So there's no Bo way F. this Mutante. is there's no way this is a bad movie for fifty cents with that pedigree. This is an awesome. It's got to be an awesome movie. God, as soon as you said Bo F. Mutante, I gotta see this movie now. That that just makes the whole picture for me. But it just... Man, that's some... I love finding these movies I've never even heard of before. You're talking no names. Right. Well, I mean, okay, to seg into a little bit of video company stuff, I, I recently went through a lot of my tapes and sort of organized them by company. Because I, I was curious how many, like you know, uh, Star Maker tapes I had, how many Universal tapes I had, stuff like that. And there's a company that I can't even find information online about called Amentex. And I found out I've got a lot more Amentex tapes than I thought I did. M-N-T-E-X Entertainment. One of the one of the videos that came with that Video Nasty torrent was a 58-minute video of just video logos... Yeah, that, 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 that's that's from the that DVD. The documentary has there was that. About, there was about, I'd say, over 100 of these video companies. And, right. of course, most of them were from were from Europe, of course. Not not all of them the United States. But it was just the sheer amount of, of video companies that came out. Like, holy moly. Oh, yeah, this stuff was, I mean, you got to remember, everybody thought during the video revolution that, that anybody could put out anything and you'd make a profit. But I'm looking like at Menentex. Like I said, I can't even find information on this company online. And even what's on IMDb for the films that they've distributed is clearly way out of date because I am holding in my hand movies that they distributed that are not listed on their IMDb page as distributed by. So even the IMDb page is woefully out of date. But for Menentex, I've got Nuclear Run, Night of the Sharks, Roboman, Someone Behind the Door, Deadline, Macon County War, Evil in the Swamp, and Dragon and the Cobra. Oh, and Terrifying Tales. And yet, I've never heard of this company. Have you ever heard I, of Menentex before? Not only have I never heard of the, never heard of any of those movies. Really? Yeah, really. 
Well, Nuclear Run is an Australian film by George Miller. It's got a cameo, an almost completely unrecognizable cameo by Mel Gibson in a big beard. It was actually made after Mad Max, but before hey, the Road Warrior. Maybe Roadshow would know who that is. Robo Man is a really interesting Elliot Gould movie. Night of the Sharks is a movie that I did for Midnight that hasn't come out yet, but it's uh, Treat Williams having to hide a CD from the mob inside a shark's stomach. Don't ask. Someone Behind the Door is a Charles Bronson flick. Deadline, I've never gotten around to watching. Macon County War, it's got some Grizzly Adams-looking dude on the cover. Actually, it is Grizzly Adams. It's uh, starring Dan Haggerty. <laughs> I just knew it was some oh, Grizzly Adams-looking dude. Adams. It's like, it is Grizzly Adams. Okay. When the down-on-his-luck folk singer Cole Jackson, Dan Haggerty, returns to Macon County, his homecoming isn't what he expected. Planning to rest and recharge his batteries, Haggerty finds his brother Nate locked in a deadly and soon-to-turn-violent battle with the mayor. Haggerty doesn't realize the mob is back to the mayor and attempting to locate a toxic waste disposal dump in his town. What follows is an action-packed race with non-stop excitement to drive the mayor out of Macon County. With that description, that movie's going to suck. Whenever they have to put action-packed in the description, there's no action in the movie. Or if it, it's hilarious adventure, it's neither hilarious nor adventure-like. Exactly. Uh, Evil in the Swamp is a Stacy Keach movie, and Dragon and the Cobra is one of the best, ballsiest fake documentaries I've ever seen in my life. It's about the death of uh, Bruce Lee, and it's, it's hosted by the awesome Adolf Caesar. You might maybe you saw this as Fists of Fury, Fists of Death. It, it's also it's the exact same movie under that title you know as something? well. I used to have this like pack of martial arts movies, and I believe that was one of the movies in the fifty pack. Okay, this is less a movie as a. They really did try to sell this as a documentary, and it's so. Blatantly ridiculous. Let me, let me see if I'm thinking of the right movie. Do they interview this like black guy and he's like working out and they're like, "Oh, do you think Bruce Lee was murdered?" Yeah, I think Bruce Lee was murdered. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's all about was Bruce Lee murdered? And then the best. Keep in mind, I'm doing the quotes thing with my fingers. The best kung fu fighters in the world coming together to claim Bruce Lee's title. First of all, Bruce Lee didn't have a title, why would you claim his title since he never held a title? I don't think Bruce Lee actually used Kung Fu, but I might be wrong on that. They even go so far in this, you gotta remember, Bruce Lee before he came to America used to do an, an old Asian soap opera. They actually take his footage from this old soap opera and they overdub it and they call it exclusive movies of Bruce Lee's early years. Yeah, it's that blatant. And there's nothing remotely believable about the documentary is aspect. There, is there a scene where, like, a, a Fred Thompson kind of guy is in bed with this Fred Williamson, you mean? He, he gets called for this. Fred, yeah, Fred Williamson. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Fred Williamson is in this. And he's in bed with the force. Yeah, Fred Williamson actually is in this movie, yeah. Well, then I do know what you're talking about in regards to that particular movie. Right. Well, you know what's really funny, speaking of Bruce Lee, you've seen that series, The Nin or the Master, right? The 1984 yeah. series with Lee Van Cleef as a kung fu expert, because that makes sense. Oh, yes, uh, it does indeed. But yes, I have seen it. You, you, most people have probably seen the Master Ninja 1 and 2 uh, episodes of MST3K. The, those were edited versions of the TV oh, series. Ninja. That was actually edited for... TV versions of the TV series. You know, they would just take two randomly random episodes, edit them together, and release them on video as Master Ninja and Master Ninja 2. 
Have you ever seen the cover for Master Ninja? It's okay, keep in mind, not only was Bruce Lee dead long before this series was even conceived, but Bruce Lee had nothing whatsoever to do with this series. It's called Master Ninja, has a small picture of Lee Van Cleef and a huge picture of Bruce Lee holding nunchucks. <laughs> and I, I'm going, wait, Bruce Lee has nothing whatsoever to do with this movie. Why is he on the cover? And then, to make matters even worse, Demi Moore is in this, but she's like 12 years old. So, of course, they use a then totally modern current photo. Yeah, they, they made, they made that fact in Mission Science Theater, right? Right. But the cover shows, uh, and this is the, to the tape is like from the early 90s, an early 90s version of picture of Demi Moore. And you're kind of going, uh, guys, that's not what she looks like in this. <laughs> Demi Moore does not look like that in this movie, guys. You do know that, right? Just like one of the tapes I have for Night of the Sharks. It was like, do you guys even know what you bought? It's a movie that takes place in the Caribbean, has to deal with a one-eyed shark called the Cyclops, and deals with hitmen. So the cover is New York City with a photoshopped uh, Treat Williams face over it called Night of the Sharks. And I'm going, okay, none of this movie takes place in New York City. There's no sharks in this on the cover. It's a modern photo of Treat Williams not looking anything like he does in this movie. What the hell were you people thinking? They just they want to they want to get these things out as quickly as possible. They don't care for factual errors. But would you buy a movie called Night of the Sharks if the cover was a picture of New York City? I wouldn't buy it if it was a cover of a naked chick on it because it's Night of the Sharks. It's actually not that bad. It's pretty stupid, but it's not that bad. Unfortunately, it's one of those movies that shows everything. And, and I, I do mean everything. No, and I do. Like, you know how an, an economical filmmaker will have three cars full of bad guys pulling up. They'll have the cars pull up, they'll have one group start to get out, and then they will edit to the last group getting out, and then the action will start to save time. Not in this, it shows the car pull up, the doors open, each guy getting out, each guy shutting the door. The next car pull up, the doors open, each guy getting out, each guy shutting Same the door. Thing. Yeah, and you just go, guys, this whole 45-second scene could have been done in five seconds if you had an actual editor working on this. That there's yeah, no reason... on the 25-minute bathroom scene, holy crap. Yeah, th this is one of those movies where they show everything because... Well, for one, they probably didn't want to edit all this stuff out because it's only an hour and 20 minutes anyway. So they were already dragging out. They probably only shot 40 minutes of usable footage, and they had to drag out the rest to get the feature-length running time. But it's, you, you know, you see that big difference in older TV movies, and especially TV miniseries. Have you ever seen The Deliberate Stranger? No. Movie where, where Mark Harmon plays Ted Bundy? Uh, no. Okay, it was a, it was a four-hour TV movie in, I want to say, like, 86 or something like that. As Joe Bob Briggs pointed out, there's a big difference in whether this was a theatrical movie or a TV movie. There's a scene where the two detectives pull up in their car, each one gets out, they each shut the door, it's all one uncut shot, they walk all the way up the lawn, no dialogue, they walk all the way up the lawn, they ring the doorbell, and they sit and wait for about ten seconds before the person comes to the door. And you go... Good God, if this were a theatrical movie, they would have showed them pulling up and then showed her opening the door. There was no need for that extra 30 seconds of footage 
that told us nothing. That there is such a thing in editing as being economical with your editing. You don't need to show every step along the way. Will she answer the door? Will they trip on her azaleas? Will they step in any dog poo on the way? Yeah, but but I mean, you see that a lot in, in uh, low-budget movies, especially from the 70s, because a lot of those were stretching for running time. You know, the movie might be an hour and 20 minutes long, but the story only takes an hour to tell. What about movie sequels that basically are made up of 60% of it is flashbacks to the first movie, and there's only like 20 minutes of new footage? What, Silent Night, Deadly Night 2? And Revenge of the Boogeyman. I haven't seen Revenge of the Boogeyman. Now, is that the sequel to the 80s Basically, Boogeyman? Basically, you see The Boogeyman. Are we talking the 80, 1980 Boogeyman with the invisible killer in the mirror? Yes. Okay, I love that movie. I actually do that on Midnight as well. I, I never saw any of the sequels. Basically, the movie is 70% flashbacks to the first Boogeyman, 30% new footage. So basically, if you if you watch the first Boogeyman, you'll have watched essentially most of Revenge of the Boogeyman. But you won't have the framing sequence, man. You won't have the framing sequence. Wasn't there a third Boogeyman? I think they made a third one. I, I, I'm pretty sure I read somewhere they made a third one, but I'm not sure. Well, how about, we only got a couple of minutes left, but how about the uh, sequels that don't have se- that aren't sequels? Such as, if you, I'm sure you've seen The Legend of Boggy Creek. Okay, there are actually two sequels to Boggy Creek each one ignoring the fact that the other one is there. There was one made by a totally different person than made Boggy Creek. He made it as a straight-laced TV movie called Return to Boggy Creek, and then the guy that made the first Boggy Creek made a direct sequel that ignored the TV movie Boggy Creek called The Legend of Boggy Creek 2. That was the Mystery Science Theater. Right. That's the one that's actually the quote-unquote real sequel, because it's done by the same guy that did the first one, whereas the other one had, like, Dana Plato in it, and it was a straight-out TV movie and obviously aimed at kids. You know, Bigfoot was all friendly in this one, and it was called Back to Boggy, or Return to Boggy Creek. And so it's a sequel that's not a sequel that the previous sequel would ignore. It's kind of like the, uh, the Ator movies. I'm sure you've heard Brad talk about the Ator films. I mean, I'm sure you've seen Cave Dwellers on MST3K. There is the Blade Master, there's Ator the Fighting Eagle, and then someone else made uh, Iron Warrior. And that was not by the guy that made the first two Ator films. And it was actually Ator 3. Well, he hated that one, so when he made Quest for the Mighty Sword, he completely ignored Iron Warrior. So, technically, Iron Warrior is a sequel that's not a sequel. Was it a different, uh, was it Miles O'Keefe as Ator? Yeah, it was, a- yeah, Miles O'Keefe was, was, uh, was Ator in the Iron Warrior as well. But, but I believe it was D'Amato that made those. He, he hated the Ator, he hated that third Ator movie, so he just, <laughs> ignore that thing. We're, we're not even gonna deal with that. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna ignore Friday the 13th Part 5, yeah. See, I kinda wish they hadn't done that. Because I think Part 5, not being a good movie, was actually an alright idea to have it not be Jason, but having everyone think it's Jason. In theory, that was a good idea. I just don't think it worked because the script wasn't very good. But in theory, that was a good idea. And I would have liked if they had stuck with that. And the fact that, as Brad pointed out, they gave away who the killer was in like 10 seconds. I also hate when movies do that, when you're supposed to be 
trying to figure out, okay, who's the killer? And yet they introduce the character that's obviously the killer. He's given everyone shifty eyes the whole time. He's obviously acting very weird and suspicious. And then when he turns out to be the killer, you go, gee, he was the killer. Imagine that. Well, kind of like with Roy, where you saw the fat kid, when they opened up the body of the fat kid, and Roy just has gives this look. And, like, have it never even... The first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, that's that's the killer. There, there's no way that that's not the killer. Well, and then on the other hand, have you ever seen the movie Night Moves? Tom uh, Skerritt and Adam, or Daniel Baldwin and that? It, it's not a great film, but it's not a bad film. But throughout the whole thing, you, you, you are trying to figure out who the killer is along with the characters. And every time... And I don't know if this is good filmmaking or bad filmmaking, but every time you think you got it figured out, that person winds up dead. And you go, all right, then. And the killer turns out to be a background character that had one line of dialogue earlier on. And I kind of went, okay, I feel kind of cheated on that one. How was I ever supposed to know that that cop that's in the background and had one line of dialogue would turn out to be the goddamn killer? Do they give like a? Do they give like twenty minutes of exposition of why? Or they, they don't give like twenty minutes of exposition, but the reason is really stupid. I haven't seen it in years, but I remember the reason even then having me go, "Huh? That's why you're a serial killer?" I'm, I was just bored. What do you want me to do? All right, we, we got to get going. Hopefully, Brad will be over the flu from next week, and I don't got to put up with it. I mean, I hope uh, Brad will be back next week. So I'm saying good night. You can contact me at twelve oh one beyond shut up. You can contact me at twelve oh one beyond gmail dot com and we can find Dane. Oh do we even care where we can find Dane? I think some people do. Alright. Mentalcast dot com. Jeez, mentalcast dot com. Good night. <laughs>